Buck held in by Walker. In behind the goal, Kelly into the corner with it. Bob Kelly centered it and they score. All alone has his 50th goal. Perfect pass by Kelly on the corner right out through the goal crease and Maruk was right there. And they're paying him quite a, quite a tribute here. A standing ovation for Dennis Maruk, the smallest player by far on this team. But just persistent forechecking. Kelly chasing the puck in the corner, turned around and just wheeled it right back out in front, took a look, wheeled it across through the goal mouth, and Maruk was over on the far side. 50th goal of the season. A 50 goal season for Dennis Maruk. Welcome to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. This is the classic hockey show for classic hockey fans. We celebrate the history of the game with stories told by the select few who actually lived it. Get ready for an all-access pass to the heart of the hockey universe. Only 20 men in NHL history have scored 60 or more goals in a single season. A sometimes forgotten member of this select club is an undersized, take-no-prisoner center named Dennis Marouk. And it's only fitting that Dennis is our guest on episode 60 of the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast. As a junior in the OHA, Marouk was one of the greatest players in London Knights history, but his 5'8", Heights scared off NHL teams until the second round of the 1975 NHL draft where he was chosen by the Wobegon California Seals. After a standout rookie season in Oakland, Baruch and his mates moved to Cleveland where he would continue to star while the franchise floundered. After just two seasons in Ohio, the Cleveland Barons were merged with the Minnesota North Stars in 1978 but Marouk was dispatched to Washington after just two games. It was in D.C. where Marouk would emerge as one of the NHL's premier centers, scoring 50 goals in 1980-81, and following that with an incredible 60-goal, 76-assist campaign in 1981-82. Rook led the improving caps in scoring in 82-83, but was traded back to Minnesota and was slotted as the team's third-line center. Amidst reduced playing time, Rook adjusted to his new role and would become one of the star's top postseason performers in the notorious Chuck Norris division in the 1980s. As chronicled in his riveting 2017 autobiography with author Ken Reed, Rook's post-playing days took him from hockey superstar to behind the wheel of a service ship in the Gulf of Mexico to carrying bags as a bellhop at an Aspen hotel, to setting up furniture for Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell, and to working as a farmhand for musician John Oates. And ultimately, Rourke's path took him to a life and death decision at the edge of the Grand Canyon. Dennis is a great interview, and you'll love his recollections of a fascinating career and life. Now, before we talk with Dennis, remember, 
Home base for the show is ProHockeyAlumni.org, and you can reach us anywhere on social media at ProHockeyAlumni. Your comments, ratings, and reviews on iTunes are extremely valuable in increasing the visibility of the show. I read all of your comments, and they are greatly appreciated. PHA Podcast joins ex-NHL pros Frank Sibonetti and Tom Laidlaw in supporting the Warrior for Life Fund and the Navy SEALs Foundation. Please visit warriorforlifefund.org for ways you can help our nation's finest. And remember to stick around after the show for the overtime session where I recap the Dennis Merrick interview and review this week's news and notes from around the world of classic hockey. Now, let's talk classic hockey with number 21, Dennis Marouk. Well, if you're an NHL team and you played against the California Seals, Cleveland Barons, or Washington Capitals in the late 70s or early 80s, you had that number 21 circled on the chalkboard before a hockey game because the man you'd be targeting is 5'8 Dynamo Dennis Marouk, number 21, who, of course... Now, this is our 60th episode of the PHA podcast, and Dennis, of course, among other things, is known for scoring 60 goals, one of the very few who've ever done that. Dennis Brooke, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, my pleasure. Dennis uh, had a chance to meet you a few years back up here in Massachusetts for the Hug Foundation Softball Tournament, and uh, you were a great addition to that successful event. Subsequent to that, the year later, you wrote a biography, uh, autobiography with, uh, with Ken Reed, an outstanding book, which I've read twice. It takes Dennis from the days of an NHL superstar to the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, to the Snow Peak Mountains of Aspen, to the edge of the Grand Canyon, and a very dramatic mm-hmm. scene in the book. Cameos from Kurt Russell, Goldie Hawn, Bruce Willis, uh, on and on. Uh, tell me a little bit about that process of writing the book and the reception you've received to it. Well, it uh, it started a while ago, and uh, as a matter of fact, I met Ken Reed in a in an event, and uh, we start start telling stories about uh, <clears throat> you know on, on the ice, uh, off the ice, and you know, post-career and all that. And, and then he says, hey, you should write a book. I go, well, why would I want to write a book? I got, I got more lives, uh, more, more things that happen in my life. And, and I, maybe I'll wait a little bit. He says, no, let's, let's sit down and talk. And I, so I, I met up with Ken and, and, uh, and met him for about four or five hours going over things. And, uh, at that time I still didn't want to, uh, do it. And, uh, again, a couple of weeks after that, we met again and I decided to go do it but this is this is the way i mentioned to ken that i was going to write some things and and he was going to write and that it was going to be um um uh, i'm 60 years old scored 60 goals and we're going to be 60 chapters and kind of looked at me and goes that's a pretty good idea and he said why did you pick that and I said, well i read a lot of james patterson's books i think he's a great author and, and he writes all short little chapters and you know what you want to read on and read on and that's how i wanted to do this book i didn't want to start out you know, starting playing hockey at eight years old in, in Toronto, Ontario, and going year by year. No, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do it like uh, James Patterson wrote, wrote his books. Well, it was, as I said, it was well well done. And we have the link to Amazon.com in the show notes for the fans who want to order the book. And as Dennis notes, it is a, a fast-paced book. It's, it's quick, easily digestible, right. and but it will 
kind of take you off guard at the beginning because it's not necessarily chronological. It's going to like throw you a little off uh, a little bit and then you kind of uh, uh, take it through the hockey career. But it's really a book that's equally valuable just on a human being level. If you've got, you know, families, if you've ever had any self-doubt, if you've ever had to overcome obstacles, which we all have, uh, this book is mm-hmm. uh, is extremely valuable in that way as well. But getting back to the hockey part, and I'm sorry, I'm going to go right back okay. to when you when you were eight years old, and you know, a good friend of mine, Rick Middleton, we've had on the show previously, and yeah, he said great he, guy, he great guy, he sure is, and he learned how to play the game. He is a big advocate mm-hmm. of playing street hockey and road hockey, and you did that as well. So, and you were a little reluctant to get into the uh, the youth hockey uh, ice skating part of it. Talk a little bit about uh, those early days of Dennis Marouk. Well, um, as a matter of fact, we played street hockey, uh, of course, on the street, and we had it was icy, and we had uh, we had a lot of uh, how do I say it guys that lived on the street uh, all around the same age or, or, or a couple of years apart. So we, we made a couple of teams and, and uh, we would play right on the street. Uh, even when it just before it got dark, we'd have to come in, but uh, on the weekends was different. So then one of the goalies uh, was playing house league hockey. And he said, uh, once come to my driveway, take some shots on me and on our driveway. And I, I did. And with the puck, he goes, you should shoot the puck pretty good. Why don't you come, uh, it was this was when I was eight years old. He said, "Why don't you come play for our house league team?" I said, "Well, I don't know if my parents can afford it. I mean, so mm-hmm. I have to ask them." And when I went and asked my my mom to uh, if I go try out for the team, she said, "You go right ahead. You can we just, we'll sign you up and you go play." And that's where it all started. Uh, and uh, you know, and at that that year, uh, my house league, I was the leading scorer, and, and I just uh, continually all the way doing that through the minor ranks in Toronto, playing with the minor Banner Marlies, Banner Marlies, Markham, Waxer Junior B, and then uh, playing a few games at the Marlies Junior A, and then, and then being traded to uh, the London, London Knights for Mark Al. Well, that's an interesting story in of itself, because at the time, the Toronto mm-hmm. Marlboros, one of the great OHA franchises right. of all time, and you've got the big line there, Billy Harris, Dave Gardner, Steve Schutz, okay. you've got Bob sure. Daly, uh, Larry Goodenough, Paul and Bordlow. I played with those guys. I played with those guys for eight. I was 15 years old mm-hmm. with those guys for eight games. So you got some great hockey players there. Yeah, there's about uh, 14 pros on that team. And you're looking to have yourself, it, it's, it's Maple Leaf Gardens, mm-hmm. it's the Marlies. You're happy as heck to be there. And of all people, my old friend Colleen Howe and the Howe family intervenes as uh, Marty House mm-hmm. Marty right. House on the team. Of course, they want the boys to play together. Mark is playing for another OHA team at that point. His property rights owned by them. And you get traded to the London Knights. Now, we all know the end of the story, which is you become one of the great London Knight players of all time, Red Tilson Award winner. However, you're just 15 years old, and uh, you've been traded 15, 16 years old. It was pretty traumatic for you, and talk a little bit about your reluctance. I mean, you get Bill Long, a good coach up there, but hey, you're just a kid, and this kind of shatters your mm. your world at a very young age. Uh, definitely, there's no doubt about it. And I'm sure I'm not one of I'm one of uh, many other players that have gone through the same situation. Uh, you know, it was out of my hands basically. I wanted to play hockey, but uh, I was I was playing lacrosse in the summer. I was a goalie and. And the junior A coach uh, called me and, and said, "You let's meet at a, a gas station because I was going across. 
I had half my gear on, and I, I thought I was going to sign a contract because any Torontonian boy wanted want to play in Maple Leaf Gardens Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock for the Toronto right. Marlies would, would definitely sign a contract. So that's what I thought I was doing, signing a contract. And I get into his car, and he goes, uh, we traded to London for Markel with another player. And I go, and I start crying. And I said, I'm not, I'm quitting hockey. I'm not going to London. I'm going I'm just going to stay in Toronto. So it took all summer. Bill Long would come down two, three times to visit. And I would just leave the house. And I, he'd go in and talk to my mom and dad. And I would just leave. I wouldn't even talk to Bill. And, and it just took a, all summer. My uh, older sister said uh, a few weeks before camp, um, listen, go, go, go to London. If you like it, stay. If not, you can come back home. So that's exactly what I did. And ended up staying at three great years in London and great times there. And I, as a matter of fact, October 1st, I moved back to London. Wow. Did not know that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I just moved to London until October 1st. Yeah. See, that's the good thing about the show. You learn something every every day. So yeah. uh, congratulations on that. And, yeah, of course, you. You, you parlay, Dennis, uh, a tremendous junior career. Now, you have one thing working against you at 5 feet 8 inches tall, and you've heard it a million times in your lifetime. NHL you know, started to go for the, you know, the bigger, tougher players. You look at that 75 draft, and if you had to redraft today uh, based on that 75 draft, you would go number one. But you end up going in the second round. Uh, the recently deceased, rest his soul, Bill McCreary Sr., uh, selects you very, very wisely. Ralph Klassen in round one, you in round two. And the thing that surprised me in the book, I did not know this, that your agent at the time was none other than hockey legend Boom Boom Jeffrey on. Which uh, I, boom. Right. so how did that initial negotiation go uh, okay. with uh, with uh, uh, the seals? Well, I think what happened there was, uh, you know, uh, yes, you're right, five eight. I thought it was going to be drafted when I was eighteen. We had an exhibition game London Knights against Washington Capitals. We lost eight to five, and I scored four goals in that game. Uh, and I, I thought, well, geez, I'm ready to go now. And and. But I didn't get drafted, and then the next year I was uh, drafted first pick in the second round. Um, still, and I think the reason was big reason because I was small uh, structure, and they're looking for the bigger guys. And then so I got drafted, and I go to California with uh, Boom Boom Jeffrey on, and uh, my, we had a lot. Uh, uh, the three other lawyers were from Montreal, but he was their their, their agent uh, doing the contracts and stuff for the teams and general managers. So. We had a meeting with them, and, and uh, we walk in, and Boom Boom said to me, he said, Dennis, you just sit there and, and just listen. Don't say anything. I'll do all the talking. Well, Boom Boom doesn't speak very good English. <laughs> and uh, and, and uh, they talked a little bit with Bill McQuarrie, and Munson Campbell was the president. And they said, well, Dennis is going to the minors for a couple of years. He's small. He needs to put on some weight, get stronger, and then we'll see how that goes right there. And, and Boom Boom goes, uh, well, no, no, no. Uh, my Danny, he played no minor. He scored you lots of goals, and we 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 signed the contract today. We sign now. We get paid We get signed contract. He don't play no minor. And so Bill McQuarrie and Munch Campbell said, "No, that's that's we're not signing the contract. Uh, uh, we're going to see how Dennis does in training camp, and we'll go from there." So, boom, boom, left, and uh, I went to training camp. First exhibition game played against Marcel Dion uh, in L.A. Uh, I was in Oakland, of course, and. I had a goal, two goals in the fifth, and I was the first star, and, and played against Marcel a lot the whole game. And uh, my, Bill McCray tapped me on the shoulder. He said, "You call Boom Boom and tell him we signed a contract back in Oakland." <laughs> so 
So that was the story right there. I had to, I had to prove, I had to keep proving to, uh, to the peers that, uh, that I could play a big man's game at a short structure. And, and that's exactly what happened. And, and that's why I ended up playing 14 years because I was, I didn't, I didn't take, uh, any, you know, I took a lot of advice from uh, certain players, but I mean, I, I didn't back down from anybody. No, you didn't. And you talked to players today. You had one uh, review in your book, uh, uh, Phil Esposito. You talked to guys like Bobby Clark. Uh, it's basically the same report on Dennis Baruch. He never backed down. If you uh, you gave him you gave him a little rough stuff, you're going to get it right back. And of course, you you had to do that to prove yourself because you're always having to prove yourself all throughout your career from the beginning right to the end. As you go to that first camp, Dennis, it's an interesting time in, in, in NHL history. It, it's different in the 1970s, of course, and it's different in the, the California SEALs organization. A lot of veteran players, the Jim Pappins, Chief Nielsens, Cobra Simmons, guys like that, going to be kind of eye-opening. At that time, there was not a lot of off-season conditioning, things of that nature. But what was that first, what was your impression of, any, of the NHL <laughs> scene that first year? <laughs> Well, you know, as a, a Toronto kid and a small, small lad watching Hockey Night in Canada, and they got an opportunity. And now you're you're there on the ice playing against these great, great hockey players that uh, not only play with them but played against, you know, some great the greats of the game uh, at 19 years old. And it was, you know, it was really exciting. There's no doubt about it. You know, someone I did an event the other day, and someone said, "Do you play against Bobby Hall?" Did you play against Bobby Orr? And I said, yeah. He said, that must have been amazing. And yeah, it truly was. There's no doubt about it. But getting back to the, the training camp, um, yeah, it was. Uh, we couldn't get to the bar se- fast enough the second day. <laughs> and, and I was kind of wondering what's, what's going on here, you know. And, and, and guys were, were 30 pounds overweight uh, going into camp. And, and it was, you know, but it was a three-week camp. We really didn't play any games then. It was all conditioning. And that's what a lot of the guys did did then um over the last i would say my first four to five years and when when the u.s won the gold medal there uh-huh. uh 80, 80, 1981 about conditioning that changed uh, everything about conditioning and the team so you could saw the games where we played more game exhibition games and we we had to come to camp in shape so that's the difference uh um i was i was shocked but you know i wanted to play in the national hockey league and nothing was going to stop me and I just kept uh, kept pushing and pushing, and uh, I made the team uh, myself and Ralph Carson. We were the two youngest guys in the team, and uh, we're the ended up being uh, two of the top center on the team. And as you came on the scene, we start learning about Dennis Marouk, uh, you know, through the hockey news, and very, you know, if you mm-hmm. came into Boston and played. And be, you know, you've heard it a million times, but every time I looked at you, it looked like you had a snarl on your face. Not it brought me because of the Fu Manchu, but uh, either way, I said to this, you always had that you always seemed so serious. Um, when I saw right. those initial pictures of you, but then again, it wasn't just the, the Fu Manchu, which by the way, it ranks uh, even with Lanny McDonald as the best of the uh, of the generation. But I, I hope I was, I've known that was that was a nice Foo, and I know Lanny had a great one too, so yeah, yeah absolutely. I was curious, you know, in my first experience working in the National Hockey League in the front office. I worked for the Hartford Whalers and I worked in PR. So mm-hmm. I had a lot of dealings with Jack Tex Evans, who I found to be okay. a, a very, uh, he was very low key, classy, nice guy, old school, 
And uh, I was curious what he was like to play for for the California Seals. Jack Jack Evans gave me an opportunity to uh, do what I could do. He put me with two guys on a line, uh, Al McAdam and Bobby Murdoch, that he knew uh, knew them, and I was just the rookie, of course. And uh, we blended uh, right off the bat, and we were called the 3M line, McAdam, Marouk, and, and Murdoch, and that went right through till the two years in Cleveland. But uh, Tex gave me an opportunity to, you know, I played a lot uh, with these guys. Uh, you know, we were, we were the top line on the team, and it just, uh, I have to give, you know, he, was he was he a great coach? Good coach? I think he was a, a great coach, putting getting the best out of the players that he had. I think that was important. Uh, we lost a lot of close hockey games, but we just didn't have enough talent. But he was just a, a great teacher uh, to the game, and of course, he was a tough defenseman when he played, and he was a tough coach too. You're in the National Hockey League, but the franchise is unstable. And they weren't able to get the. It's too bad. They were, I think the seals are a little ahead of their time. When you see what subsequently happened with uh, San Jose and being the Bay, Bay Area at the time, you've got the Oakland Raiders, Oakland A's. It's it's got to be a, a good atmosphere to play in. In some cases, you had a good loyal fan base, not not a huge one. And uh, right. eventually, it's deemed that the team is going to move to Cleveland, Ohio. And we all know the. WHA Cleveland Crusaders, of course, they were poorly attended because you have this big warehouse basically <laughs> built out in the middle of nowhere in Richfield, Ohio. Uh, you come out there, right? You come out there again and again. It's the same situation. So now you've gone to the National Hockey League. You're again, you're productive as heck. You make the All Star team. But what is it like playing in Cleveland? Is it difficult? And I, I've talked to a couple of players who played for like Kansas City and Colorado. But is it difficult for you, even though you're driven, even though you're an all-star, to keep yourself focused on those home games when there may be, especially in that building, you know, four or 5,000 people in the rink? Yeah, it was, it was tough. There's no doubt about it. I, you know, I, I think you're right about being ahead of time. But they, they knew hockey in Cleveland, but it just wasn't uh, – it just wasn't a big sell there. There, you know, there was baseball and football and everything else that were were big sells there, and hockey was not. Um, we yes, we knew that we had to win. The more we won, the more things we got out in, in, in the press and that, and people would come. But you know, it it it, it was hard. There was no doubt about it. Uh, for me, going to Oakland and then uh, having a pretty good year and things that looked like they were starting to be real good, and all of a sudden now we're being told that they they can't build a they're not building a new rink in, in Oakland and San Francisco. They're they're going to be moving the team, and all of a sudden it's moved to Cleveland. We get to Cleveland, and nothing uh, turns out really great. That big, beautiful stadium, and you know we we average I think around nine or ten thousand people, uh, but still it was empty when you have to fall. You know, Montreal Canadiens come in and you got ten thousand people, and go wait a minute here, it right. should be sold out. And, and so that's that's kind of what it was. And then we went the time where uh, the team was going to fold. And we were told Buffalo was in town. We didn't get paid for a month. Um, team was going to fall, and we were going to go on a dispersal draft. So uh, that was we we're all we're ready. After our morning skate, went out and had a few pops and lunch and said our goodbyes because we who knows who we're going to see each other again. <laughs> and they and they end up calling our player rep Bob Stewart. Uh, I think at four thirty and said we had to, the NHL took over the insurance, so we had to play the game. And they were taking over our um, our pay- payment at four thirty. So we had at four thirty. So yeah, a couple of guys came about ten to seven 
you know, uh, kind of a little lit up a little bit, but, uh, <laughs> you know, what can you do? I mean, that's, uh, they were told us and all of a sudden they told us that it, we lost six or two, but we had a lot of fun during the day anyway. So, <laughs> and they ended up playing the rest of the season. And then, and then of course, Cleveland and Minnesota merged. So, uh, and then at that time, as I, I continue on here, um, uh, you know, I, I, I got, uh, uh, going to Minnesota and then next thing you know, uh, they kept their sentiment and, Lou and Andy wanted to get a first round pick. He was going to trade me. And I said, well, trade me in the summer. And so I can go to the city and, and enjoy it. I mean, I understand his, uh, his uh, philosophy, but nothing happened. He said, come to Minnesota. Uh, teams are going to, teams are going to like you and all that. My agent at the time was Alan Eagleson. And he said, no, don't buy a house, go to training camp. There's a couple of teams that are interested for you. And that's exactly what happened. Washington Capitals grabbed me for a first round pick and I ended up going to Washington. Going back five years there and then Absolutely. Yep. And stepping back one second to Cleveland, the two players I wanted to ask you about, you know, in the hockey cards, I don't know what year it was, it was a Gilles Melosh hockey card and it's a picture of you and Gilles talking before a game. And so I, I kind of, you know, between uh, California, Cleveland and uh, eventually Minnesota, I kind of keep you two in mind. I kind of think of one, I think of the other, but tell me a little about Jill Melosh, a guy who was, uh, was on the short end of a, of a, a lot of hockey pucks playing for Cleveland and uh, California, had a lot of success in Minnesota. What type of guy was Gilles? What type of goaltender was he? Well, I just think if he was playing for Montreal, mm-hmm. French Canadian goalie and playing, uh, I mean, he was a great, he was, he was probably our most valuable player. Um, in the years I played with him, uh, due to the fact that because our team was not real strong, the, the three years and he just uh, get peppered with shots left and right, and he kept the games close for us. And you know he didn't win a lot of games, but uh, and the games that won, we won a lot of them were because of Joe Malas. Mm-hmm. Um, off the ice, um, just a wonderful gentleman. There's a goalie that you can sit day of the game and talk to him about the game. Where a lot of goalies in the game, you can't even talk to them. <laughs> Right. Uh, he's one goal that you can fool around with and talk to him. And if he, even if he's playing and that, that was, I thought was pretty neat. Um, I learned a lot from him. Uh, I, during my whole career, I talked to a lot of the goalies about good goal scores. What are they, what do they kind of give them? And, and I learned a lot from our goalies, uh, what, what I should try and do on their goalies. So, um, but Jilly was just, uh, he got me introduced to red wine, uh, Cabernet in California. Uh, uh, before I had Matus Rosé, which is kind of a light wine, and I was 19 years old. But uh, <laughs> he got me an instituted in the California cabs, and that's pretty much what I drink now from all, ever since that day. So, And he just took care of me because I lived down in Haywood, California, and that's where he lived. Myself and another player rented a condo, and I'd have dinner, and they'd invite us over for dinner, and we'd hang out together. And So he gave me my first year with... Uh, was uh, a, a lot, a lot of good times, a lot of thrills from uh, Joe Malosh, and and uh, he's just been—he was a great competitor, but he's just a gentleman, and a great man off the ice. I know he lives in Florida now. He's a goalie, uh, does a scouting for Pittsburgh. He's real close friends with Mario, and just a just a gem, gem, gem of a gentleman. There's no doubt about it. That's oh, good to hear, and I I agree. You know, in the mid '90s, I worked for the Penguins organization. Had a chance to meet Jules coming in and off of scouting trips, etc. And always, uh, right. always a first-class individual. Dennis, one other. When you mentioned Marcel Dion, which by who, by the way, uh, one of the great players of all time, wrote the forward to uh, right. your your book, which was very interesting in and of itself. But 
When I think of Dion, I also think of a guy you play with in California, in Cleveland, Charlie Simmer. 45-game mm, stretch. 45-game stretch for Charlie. Three goals, one assist in over two years. Clearly, he had some ability, but I think a couple of lessons are learned here. Number one, two years later, of course, he ends up leading the NHL in scoring, but playing on that left side with Marcel Dion. And you just never know. I mean, you get a guy in the right situation where he can use, utilize his skills, and you can go from you know a borderline NHL player to one of the most productive. Yeah, you're, you're, you're so right. Yeah, you're so right. Chaz is a, was a great great competitor. I know. I remember Chaz at uh, that time, he was kind of up and down. He wasn't uh, solid on the team. And it's just like, uh, I don't know what, as a player, you, you're worried about yourself and your job and all that. And, and you know, when you see guys go up and down, you wonder why, why, why is this happening? And maybe this not the right fit, the right situation, uh, right team and all that. You know, sometimes they say grass isn't is green on the other side and you get traded to a team and next thing things don't work out. Um, but in, Ch- in Chaz's situation, you know, when he got to LA with the, with Marcel Dion and Dave Taylor, what a line, triple crown line. And, mm-hmm. and, and they were all, they all did their jobs, uh, you know, uh, perfectly. And they scored a lot of, a lot of points and they were tough to play against. And uh, I've, I've met Chaz a few times since, uh, since retired and, and stuff. But uh, he just, he was, uh, and Marcel, of course, and look what, look at, uh, look what he's done and, and never won a Stanley cup. So, you know, there's there's a lot of things that you can look at, a lot of reasons why should Marcel have been with Montreal Canadiens would have won all the Stanley Cups. And, oh, yeah. You know, he just you know, and he just had, you know, I think that's one thing that he'll always remember that, you know, he didn't get that Stanley Cup. And, and But look at look at his accolades. Look what he's got, his scoring and everything. Just a, and, and, uh, and he's got his diner and, and all that up in, uh, in Niagara Falls. And just a, I've, I've done a bunch of events with him. It's just a class guy. And what he wrote... In my book, when he forwarded uh, my book, and I like to quote when he said uh, uh, that we're we're like uh, because of small in structure, and we're like two pit bulls that we never quit. <laughs> Whereas a German ship might get, might get bit, might not he'll quit. We don't pit bulls don't quit. So that that was kind of a neat quote in there. Oh, absolutely, and you sure didn't. You know, you you mentioned the Stanley Cups, and you know, in, in the key parts of your career, if you think about it, from when you broke in only. Let's say the first uh, 11 years of your career, uh, only Montreal, the Islanders, and Edmonton actually won the cup. So there's so right. many great players of that generation who didn't because only three teams did in that, in that stretch of time, and they had some right. real, real dynasties. So you're definitely not alone. I've had the discussion with Rick Middleton many times. How, you know, it was just uh, these days, you know, it seemed to alternate every year. Teams are able to pop up and everything and, and, and win one, then slide back. Back then it was very, very difficult. But as you noted, you're traded to Washington and it's a great fit for you. And I remember uh, a guy I used to work with, Tommy Rowe, in that first year. I think he had a 30-goal season. Mm-hmm. That was a career high for him. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're fitting mm-hmm. in in Washington. But one thing keeps repeating in your career at that stage and that is the capitals are under financial duress and really uh abe Pollen does a mm-hmm. tremendous job keeping the thing going and now of course it's a it's a great organization a stanley cup champion yeah, but yeah. but people forget back then it was save the caps it was touch and go there for a while oh you're definitely right and uh, you know abe, abe Pollen was a great owner great man and he he worked so hard to get this uh, to, to keep the team there because it was the team was going to fold. It was, 
they needed to get more uh, season ticket holders. And we, we did have save the cap campaign and going on and, and it survived. And, and, and then all of a sudden they made that big trade, uh, defensive trade where, uh, uh, we traded uh, Rick Green and Ryan Walter for, uh, Rod Langway, Brian Ingram, Doug Jarvis, and Craig Lachlan. And, uh, that just changed the whole dynasty of, uh, of the Washington Capitals because, uh, they had great defensive players, especially our best one of the best checkers in the league, Doug Jarvis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, and then they started getting some draft picks, and and with Ovechkin, and, and now now look at them there. They won a Stanley Cup, and and, and I was so proud that they uh, on the TV the announcers were, you know, mentioning my name and Mike Gartner, Rick Green of of the guys that started all this, and and they should be proud and. We were definitely proud, and we watched, and, uh, and I was part of it. I went down to the, the banner uh, raising and, and the red carpet. But, uh, you know, it's just uh, it's great to see, and I uh, hope they do it again. Absolutely. Well, you sure were, sure were a pioneer. ESPN used to telecast Capitals games with more regularity than most Capitals of Whalers, and so we got a chance to watch Dennis Maruk in. Uh, in your year, year two, you, had the, you were productive, but you had the injury. But in year three in Washington, you combine with Hound Kelly and Jean Pronovo, and I'll uh-huh. tell you, you know, it's hard to make the National Hockey League. It's hard to stay in the National Hockey League. It's even more difficult. It's a very, very small number of people who score 50 in the NHL, and you do that, and you complete that with a three-goal game against the Detroit Red Wings, which we heard in the opening of the show. But you've got two guys, two real veteran guys, really at the end of the line, uh, but we've had, you know, Kelly, of course, with two Stanley Cups in Philadelphia, John Pronovo, a big scorer with Pittsburgh. But talk a little bit about how that line gelled together. Well, I mean, you got three different players uh, on the line, and, and I was the young centerman, and, and they put me together with uh, the two of the uh, older guys, uh, mature guys, and thought this would work, and it, it did. It, it took, took a little time, but it, it, we got to know each other, and, you know, Bob Down, um, he was more of a, uh, a guy running in the corner, get the box, bang a few bodies, and either myself or Jean Prone would come in and try and pick up the loose box. Or, or Jean, Jean had a little more uh, scoring ability than uh, um, better hands than, than Bob did. But Bob, he ended up getting, I think, 25 goals that year. So it was, I think, his best year ever. So we had we had a good line for that uh, for that year, and, and they were definitely helpful in and in, in my my getting uh, 50 goals there's no doubt about it you just don't do it yourself uh you know even Gretzky you know he doesn't do all that because it's just himself he gets uh, a lot of support with him um but uh, you know you you really look at the line you look at what your talents and strengths are and we just we blended pretty good Prony and I were two guys with the offensive power and and, and Bob Hound was more of a, an aggressive uh, stand in front of that, create traffic, give us room and all that kind of stuff, and, and it worked out. You not only proved that 50 was no fluke, you take it one level higher, you nail 60 goals in 81-82, and you do it with a completely different line, mostly mm-hmm. playing with Ryan Walter and then Chris Valentine. And Chris, of course, right. had a very brief NHL career, but that year he had 30 goals in 60 games. And Ryan Walter speaks for himself. He created a lot of commotion in the corners. He could score a pass and play the all-around right. game prior to being traded. But, again, talk a little bit about how that line gels so extremely well. And you did so with a huge slump, I think, right in the beginning part of the season or towards the middle. But you were mm-hmm. able to uh, overcome that and still end up with, with 60 and a, an exciting season for the Washington Capitals. 
Well, yeah, it was, uh, that was uh, the all-star game too in, in right. Washington. Uh, but, uh, Brian Murray put us, put us together and, and, and it's almost the same scenario, uh, talent, uh, for, uh, the year before where Ryan Walter is, uh, you know, was a tough young, uh, like the hit, the odd fight here, or there. And, and Chris was at great hands. It wasn't real fast, but he was, he, could, he knew where to put the puck and, we had worked on uh, we had worked on things in practice uh, that Brian Murray put us on uh, together on the power play. We stayed in the line, so we we got a lot of ice time. But we we really worked on some different plays. We didn't just have one; we had two or three. And sometimes we didn't even look. We threw the puck, and there was the player right there because we had worked on it and it worked in the in the games uh, uh, from working on it in practice. But it wasn't like that all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, as we did, we did go through a bunch of games and not scoring, but Brian kept us together. He knew that we were, we were still getting chances, but we weren't scoring, but we, we were still working together and still doing the things that he wanted us to do. And, and it just excelled. Brian, I think Ryan had, I think a 30 or 40 goal season that year too. So we, we had a lot of goals in that, that, uh, that line. Um, and he kept us together. And, and so it was just a compliment uh, from these two guys that, for me, getting six, I think the last three games, um, <clears throat> I didn't get a goal. But uh, we had a lot of chances. I could have had more than six. And I think that year, I probably could have had 75 goals. Wow. If things went in and, and we didn't have that some, probably 75 goals or something like that. That's just how our line was, uh, how we, we created a lot of scoring chances. And, and, and a lot of times it worked. You had some, you know, some bad luck at various points in your career, but this year wasn't one of those years because that this happens to be the year the All Star Game is in Washington, and right. as a fan watching the game, of course you can see it on YouTube now, but as a fan watching the game, I was really waiting for you to get introduced, They're waiting what the reaction would be. So they get down the line, mm-hmm. and Mark Tardif, one of my favorite players, and then. Right. It comes to Dennis mm-hmm. Baruch and the place just goes crazy. Your parents are there. You're at the center of the hockey universe at that moment. Uh, how does that feel? Well, there's no doubt about it. You know, I, I, I could have been, there could have been other players on the team who represent Washington, Washington as well, you know, but I got, I got chosen. So I had to represent our team and, 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 and I was really honored to, to represent Washington Capitals and be be on that ice with uh, great, great hockey players. There's no doubt about it. And then, and, you know, the crowds boo and the Islanders and the Rangers that are on. And then, you know, even the Oilers, they're going all of a sudden come my, my name at the end. And I, and I was the last one introduced, you know, because of Washington. And, and it was uh, just a, a outstanding uh, ovation that went on for, wasn't just for 10 seconds, went on right. for a good minute or so. And, and, uh, yeah, I got the trails and, and all that. So I remember that day to this date. Uh, it was just a wonderful experience. And, you know, going to the White House, having lunch at the White House and meeting Ronald Reagan, all, all those things that went on that whole week uh, up to the uh, the All-Star game was just a, just a highlight in my career. And I can always say that, that that's my Stanley Cup, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, because uh, I never got one and, and all that. So, But um, it, was, it was just a wonderful Wonderful year, yeah. Dennis, when you talk about your Stanley Cup, and we appreciate the time here today again, uh, but you're one of those guys, I think of the Guy Chiron maybe being another one who would, because the teams were unsuccessful during the regular season, you end up playing in the world championships. 
And in this book, we can't go through them all, but in the book, there's some real, sometimes funny stories, uh, the black sheep stories and things of that nature, but to be able to, so, so it's great stuff. And again, we totally, we highly recommend this book. I'm just telling you, our fans, our classic hockey fans here, we have a lot of them. If you haven't read Dennis Burke's book, please do so. You're going to really enjoy it. And we talk a little bit about the, the world championships and at various times, uh, various players are, are playing with you, but Talk, I guess I'm just asking, I guess would ask you in general, just being able to, and these, the thing about these tournaments was they're a little bit of a mystery to me because I'm living in the United States. They didn't get a ton of coverage. Uh, the season was, the regular season was over. So you had to kind of follow through the hockey news, et cetera. Right. But talk about, I, I guess, just playing for your country and then coming away with a couple of medals over the, the four teams that you played on. But what was it like uh, playing for your, your, your country in the, in the world championships? Well, anytime you're playing for your country, you're so pumped up, you're so excited, and and they're going against the the top the top players in the other countries. I mean, they we we didn't have our best, you know, we were able to have our best players. I probably most likely would not have been on those teams um, because they were in the playoffs. Our best players in the playoffs and going to, uh, for the Stanley Cup. And I'm talking about the sentiment position. That, that's where I was. Yeah. And uh, you know what I mean? So there was so many great hockey players playing center, but I got chosen. I got the opportunity to go out, go to Europe and, and, and internationally to many different countries and, and was able to show people out there what I could do. And, and I remember, you know, we, yeah, we didn't have the best teams, but we, we got together and worked real hard and, and, and tried to do the best we could there uh, against their best. And, you know, I remember scoring against Trechak, and that was an honor for me to be able to score against one of the best goalies ever to play the game of, of mm-hmm. hockey worldwide. And so, you know, just things like that I always remember. And yeah, you can say that that was in my Stanley Cup because it was playoffs, uh, even though we didn't win the Stanley Cup. But I got, uh, I was uh, lucky and fortunate to be chosen to go play for your country. And, and any player knows that coming from uh, playing for Canada, U.S., know how, how valuable, how important that is. And I know, but with the Olympics, that they should have the best players playing in the in the Olympics. Well, back in Washington, you have a. Uh, I think it's un, I think it's underrated, but I think you have a real test, and that is going to your final year in Washington. You're one of the top centers in all of hockey, and you, the team, as you noted, makes some trades. Ryan Ryan Walter goes. So Scott Stevens is drafted on D. Rod Langway comes in, Brian Englom, Doug Jarvis, a different look. But for you, and I, I never was comfortable with you in this position as a fan, because I always said you, you seem to be the consummate center, but you're moved to left wing. Uh, <laughs> and so my, my question is, so this, this takes a lot for a guy like you. Again, you've had right. so much success at center. Brian Murray, a good, respected coach, d- obviously doesn't do these things really well. Really. Bobby Carpenter actually a Bobby Carpenter came in, right? Right. The can't miss kid comes in from Washington and you kind of have to, I don't want to say swallow your pride, but you got to sacrifice where you're excellent at, where you've proven yourself at being at the top of your game to play left wing. What type of an adjustment was that Dennis? Yeah, it was, it was uh, hard. Um, As I said to you earlier on, uh, you don't, you want to play in NHL and no matter where you can play, even though I played center all my career now, then all of a sudden I get asked to, you go on left wing, and uh, I think at that time, uh, uh, center was Doug Jarvis and Ken Ken Houston was on the right wing most most of the time, and 
I think by the All Star break, I was I was the leading leading scorer in the, as left wingers, but I was in the ballot down as centerman. Oh. I wasn't down in the ballot as the left winger, but I had the most points as a left winger, and I think I ended up with ninety points or something that year on on left wing. What the adjustment was was yes, getting to play the the wall, the, the, the uh, your your wing up and down in your position, knowing the defenseman and and making sure that you, you get the puck out and make sure that you cover your point man and and then in the offensive zone, make sure you get in there and create traffic. Uh, if the puck's in the corner, you have to drive hard in there and take the man out, whether he's 5'8 or 6'4", no matter mm-hmm. what, because we want to get the puck and keep it in there. And so that was an adjustment. Uh, how did I feel about it? You know, as I said, you, you, you're, gonna, you're playing the NHL, you're playing for an NHL team. And you do the best you can, and I think I did a, you know, a wonderful job playing left wing. That I, I, the first time ever playing in the NHL. No question, does says a lot about you. And coming up, you're going to face a similar challenge again and again. The thing that that's remarkable is this is all on the heels of you hitting a peak performance. It wasn't like your 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 skills were diminishing or your production was going down. And Lou Nanny kind of gave up on you a little too too quickly when uh, Cleveland merged with Minnesota. Right. Didn't want to make the same uh, mistake again, and he uh, acquires you in, in a trade. So you're going to a Minnesota team that is eventually going to be on the rise. Mm-hmm. However, mm-hmm. Uh, you've got Bobby Smith there, uh, eventually Neil Broughton. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't want to Glenn get on that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Glenn Sharpley. So... You go to Minnesota once again. You're asked to sacrifice. You're playing, you know, second and third right. line. So when you look at your stats for Minnesota right from the get go, they're really good. But when you put them in the context of fewer power play opportunities, less ice time, you're probably just on par with what you were doing with Washington. So again, I would ask you the same question: making that adjustment in Minnesota to not having the same offensive opportunities, you remain productive. But is that a challenge for you, knowing that if you're in a different situation or a different team, you'd still be scoring 45, 50 goals a year? You know, the, you know that's that word called adversity. How do you deal with adversity? I mean, I, I think when when I got, I was really disappointed because when I met in the summer with Washington before that trade, they told me, I was with Brian England, as a matter of fact, and I went in and talked to uh, Brian Murray and them, and they said that they were going to put me back at center. Well, a week later, I got traded. So figure that one out. Um, right. And then when I went to Minnesota, the uh, the whole thing was that um, Lou Nanny always said that he loaned me out to Washington for five years and brought me back. But um, the uh, you know I ended up not playing a lot, third and fourth line, uh, the odd power play time, and I ended up with between sixty and seventy points. Uh, not playing a lot. If you look at my point stats from when I got there, uh, one one playoff, uh, what happened was Neil Barat and Dino and Scotty Buzek, that line was being checked, and they put myself, Kent Nielsen, and Brian Bellows together as a line in the playoffs. Well, I think uh, I think I had 15 points in a five-game series. Uh, and, I, and nobody caught me until the last round in the playoffs. Right. And we got beat up by St. Louis. But I mean, I mean, to me, I question why did he not use me more 
when he knew I could do more. Prime example, what, what happened in the playoffs when I became, our line became the top line and we weren't, weren't the top line during the regular season because we played with uh, Neil Broughton, Dino and all those guys a lot more and we, we were thrown in here and there. Um, and that's all it was. You had to deal with, you just had to be ready. And, and at one time, they were going to trade me and um, during that, that whole time. And that was, that was frustrated and disappointed. And uh, I was the odd man out. I couldn't even practice with the team. I got the, I had to practice on my own. Wow. And then we went on the road. We went on the road uh, to play a game. I was the extra man. Um, they were trying to make a trade, but I, I, I didn't practice the team. I practiced by myself. And wow. that's where it was for, for, for a while. And, and, about eight games, uh, there there was an injury, and they put me in the lineup and I, against New Jersey, and I scored two goals. And of course, I played more after that. You see what I mean? So, right. and I didn't get traded, and I didn't get traded. <laughs> it's so, so much. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. You talk about the adversity and the, those times when you're yeah. skating around the ice by yourself, and you you, yeah. you know you're wondering. You, maybe you're doubting yourself, wondering why they don't believe in you. And, right. and then at some points right. you're in the press box, never more talent in the press box than were some of those Minnesota days when you and Kent Nilsson were in the press box. Um, two yeah, of the most talented. Like you're all one game. Yeah. We're right. looking at each other. We're, we're two best players. What are we doing in here? What did we do wrong? And, and they were just a healthy scratch, and that's all I First of all, you're going through the Chuck Norris division, as they used to call it, uh, the black and blues, right. uh, tough. And you've scored at a better rate in the playoffs than even you did during the regular season. I think you averaged over a point a game in, in the in, in the postseason. But in the end, you know, back in those days, as we talked about earlier in the show, you kind of had to run into Edmonton. Every time I talked to guys who played for Calgary or yeah. you talked to yeah, guys from Minnesota, right. eventually you got to deal with maybe the greatest team of all time, certainly one of the top four or five. I think that Minnesota, the one year there, we had the team to beat them. Mm-hmm. We just didn't have enough. Yeah, you had a, a, a tough, yeah. I believe, a tough overtime game in game two. Yeah, and yeah, and there was one game we were leading four to one midway through the second period, and we lost seven five. Right, so there you go. But that was uh, so much. That was yeah. a good group. I I was wanting to just skip ahead to eighty seven, eighty eight. Herb Brooks was on the scene, and. It's um, mm. he's of course celebrated as he should be as one of the great uh, American coaches of all time, U.S. Olympic champion. However, this season eighty seventy eight is just miserable from beginning to end to Minnesota. And I know that he had asked you for your opinions on things and what have you. Right. I think you I think you had a good rapport with Herb, but tell me a little bit about right. uh, about Herb Brooks in that very challenging year. Well, um, oh, that that year was. I think everybody said could could. Lou Nanny and her Brooks worked together. And here, here's, here's the chance. Here, here's what happened. I heard her, it was Jim. And now, and, and what we saw was it was okay, but um, there was a lot of things happening where, um, you know, I'd be sitting in the office with Herb and, and I'd say, he'd go, how you doing? I said, I said Herb, you don't, you don't look too happy. What's going on? He says, well, I'm just waiting for my phone call for someone to tell me, uh, who I have to put in the lineup. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that kind of was situation right there. And he respected me because what I did was, uh, um, you know, a very uh, prolific goal scorer and I was killing a penalty and blocking shots and things like that. And I ended up getting a shattered kneecap and he respected me for, for giving up uh, uh, what, what I did uh, and, and 
tried to learn and do something different, killing penalties and all that kind of stuff. So he respected me for that, and I respected him as a coach and what he did, and, you know, with the gold medal, with the, uh, the Americans and all, all that. Uh, was just uh, He was just a wonderful man and a great family. I got to know the family and, and uh, all that. So, yeah. Well, in your final year, a little less rapport with a guy who was controversial, Pierre Paget, and uh, your career comes to an end. And I, you go into the uh, the front office of Minnesota. You leave your career now. You're 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 selling tickets, I believe, as a ticket department, working for Lou Nanny now right. in that role. So that has got to be the strangest feeling in the world, going to the Met Center with a shirt and tie on, as opposed to well, I guess you're always there, but going as an employee. How is that adjustment psychologically? Now, I've, I've talked to guys over and over again, but I always think, think to myself, and I've been around so many former players, how difficult it must be to do something that you love and that you're great at, and then all of a sudden you have to make that switch on a dime. Boom. Now you're, well, you're, you're in the marketing department with the North Stars. How is that experience? What's your post-career, what you're going to do, you know? I think that's what, what I, at that time when I was retiring, I wasn't really set up to, to uh, walk into a, a job situation. I felt, well, maybe, maybe I'll try working on the uh, business side of it uh, for a year. But when I went through that year and what I heard and what I saw, um, probably in a different situation or a different team or a different uh, management situation, I probably would have stayed working in that. But under the circumstances there in Minnesota, it wasn't a good fit. So I had to leave there. And, and I think that's where I was, I was excited. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed walking into an office. I enjoyed doing that. I enjoyed going out in the public and meeting people, selling advertisement and things like that and, and towards the, the Met Center and all that. It was, I enjoyed that. It was, it was a lot of fun. But um, just the way it was, it wasn't working out the way I thought it would would have worked out so i had to move on well you did and boy did you ever you talk about moving on yeah. what a story and again I, I will say this now for about the third time in the interview when you read the book you'll find that we've gone through dennis's hockey career that's the show we do but the really fascinating to me meaningful parts of the book even more so than the playing yeah. are the post-career and the relationships and yeah, getting into the personal stuff. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah. guess the the honesty, Dennis, about uh, you know depression and, and self doubt, and again, these are things that we all we all go through. But sometimes you feel like you know a National Hockey League player would not go through these type of things. But you know, maybe even more so because again, you've had the highs and the lows that maybe you know the, the regular guy hasn't. But I'd like you to we can skip ahead. I wanted to just take you to what we talked about earlier. You're at the edge of the Grand Canyon, essentially. You've you're, you're driving to Las Vegas from Aspen. You've called your family, essentially, just you know, tying up loose ends. It seems like you're just saying, "Hey, you know, uh, I love you." You're talking about talking to your, your family. You don't even know if, if life is worth going on at, at this point. But take us to the Grand Canyon and how you kind of emerged from those depths with a great deal of help from your family. Well, you know, yeah, as I said, it started the post-career, you know, you, you started working on different jobs and 
and, and you know, we we were always told during our, our professional career that there was going to be a lot of windows open for us and when we when we retire. But uh, my my windows were probably uh, uh, I don't know very very slim. So the things didn't work out. So I I jumped from job to job and 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 different situations trying to find something that I really liked and even coaching and and all that and um in the minors and it just uh, one thing led to another. Things didn't work out. I ended up in uh, coaching Louisiana, and then I ended up going to Aspen, Colorado, coaching and working with kids and a job there, and you know, broken marriages, and 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 it just to the point where, you know, things just kind of hit me. And I, you really you have to hit south bottom. You have to hit bottom to really uh, to explain everything to people where you are. And if you if you got, it's really hard to. And I was at the point where I didn't know who to turn to. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where it was going, what was happening. And, and I got into the booze a little bit and then uh, the booze kind of led me to, uh, to uh, deciding that uh, I'm, I'm done with my life and I'm getting in my car. And I had a job in Colorado. I had a great job in Aspen, Colorado. And I uh, got my car and uh, that was it. I was, go- I was going to, uh, to Vegas, drive to Vegas. And no matter what it was, I didn't know how it was going to be done, but I was, that was the end of my life. And I was calling people and friends and, Oh, you know, when when you're not drinking and driving is not a good thing, and uh, and right. I got a little tired. Tired, I got around the Grand Canyon, and I just pulled over on a dirt road. It wasn't an exit. I just pulled over on a dirt road uh, and stopped, and I, I passed out in the car. And, and the sunlight in the morning woke me up. I get out of the car, walked five feet, and I was a cliff to the Grand Canyon. Um, now I would have went on probably another four or five feet in my car. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you about it. I got back in my car and I start, I start shaking and I'm going, what am I doing? I got a job. I drove back to Aspen, went in where I was living, had shower, uh, knock on the door came. I got up, uh, a towel around and come into the door and it's a police. And he goes, are you been a smirk? I go, yeah, I've been a smirk. He says, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm fine. I'm uh, just getting ready to show. Just getting ready to go to work. He said, you know, we've got a lot of people calling about you. You're, they're worried about you. I said, yeah, I, I know. Um, everything's fine. I'm going to work. I'll be all right. But it did take a long time, and I had a lot of help from my family. But I guess the one person that I could uh, really, uh, my son, but I really would have to be my daughter Sarah, mm-hmm. who uh, con- constantly called me. Every day, making sure that I was all right, I was seeking help and and all that, and going to work and and doing other things to to keep my mind off, uh, you know, the depression and all that anxiety and all that kind of stuff. And and she was extremely helpful, and, and we still stock daily as as this day today. So that's a beautiful uh, thing, and that's, yeah. it says a lot about yeah. your yourself as well. And now, of course. As you said, you've you've got your your children who've mm-hmm. gone on to great success, but you also have grandchildren. Yeah. And um, right. So, what what are their age ranges, and uh, do you have any uh, young athletes among your grandchildren? Well, I got two boys uh, that are playing in Minneapolis. They're five and seven, and they've been on ice for two years. Uh, the seven-year-old uh, is on like a, a traveling called Minnesota Blades. At 70 years old, that's pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he's really his, his dad was a great hockey player. 
could have played in the NHL, you know, to college and all that, but didn't. He had a great job opportunity. He decided to take that, and he still works for that company. And then I have a, a one-year-old that's in Los Angeles. Uh, my youngest daughter has a one-year-old boy, so he hasn't started skating yet. But mm-hmm. uh, they, uh, the five and the seven-year-old, are, especially the seven-year-old, they're both tough little boys, and, and they've got the hockey genes in from their grandpa as well as their dad. <laughs> So and they love the they love the game they love the sports, um, you know the seven year old watches Sportsnet all that in the morning when he gets before he goes to school or late at night to find the scores. You think mm-hmm. he watches game shows and you know for kids at that age and uh, no he he's all in the sports which is phenomenal for a kid at that age. So you never know you know I never I thought my son could make it he didn't go in the NHL. And, uh, but, uh, well, yeah, we'll, spend, we'll see him 15 years or so, or 10 years, whatever. Yeah. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, have, they're great uh, kids. I spend, I, I spend time in Minneapolis a lot with them. So, yeah. But when you talk about family, your success, of course, doesn't happen without very involved parents. And I know you had a very, uh, touching dedication mm-hmm. to your mom in, in the book and also acknowledging, uh, your father as well, but talk a little bit about your your upbringing and how that uh, you know that sacrifice the parents make and your parents made uh, was instrumental in your future success. Yeah, well, sometimes you know, in a family you got three. Uh, I got three other brothers, right? So mm-hmm. we're all playing sports. So sometimes it becomes a could be a negative thing, and not only as positive but negative. You know, because I got I got I was always playing on the best teams. I was selected, and, and, and so my parents would drive me to the games, and my brothers a lot of times would have to get right. And so it created a, oh. a kind of a, a friction between the brothers, and um, and not my, it wasn't our fault. It was our parents deciding to do, do that route, and, and that was the negative side of it. The positive side that I always got to do, you know, you know whatever I wanted to, and, and in the summers I would take care of the house and, if I broke I broke a stick in the game, I was no problem. I I would get a new hockey stick. I I wouldn't have to do other things because I I picked up garbage. I made sure the house was clean when they both both came home from work. And I was young. I had older sisters, and they didn't they didn't do it. I did it, you know. So I I got rewarded for that, and you know, and and then when I when I did sign that contract, I got a thirty thousand dollars signing bonus, and. I thought I was a millionaire in, in Oakland with a $30,000 check. And so I, I said to my parents, I said, uh, what do you want? I mean, I got $30,000 check. You guys are supporting me on my, my, my youth hockey and sports and drove me around. And when you want, I figured they'd want a new car. They wanted a pool. <laughs> I said, what do you want a pool, pool for? Because we want to socialize. We want to entertain with our friends and family and, and all that, we can sit outside, barbecue, play cards, and get hot. We can go in for a dip. Well, my parents never knew how to swim. Uh, oh. So they would just go, no, you don't know how to swim. I mean, why would you go to a pool? You don't know how to swim. So they would just go in the shallow. And we had to make sure there was a shallow in so they could walk in and get wet, come up. So we had a deep end, too. <laughs> but that's what they wanted. And they they loved it. They, they had so, even Wayne Gretzky, as a matter of fact, Wayne Gretzky was back there in, in our house, uh, um, West Summer Collegiate, my, my younger uh, I had already played in the NHL, and Wayne hadn't played in the NHL, and he was doing awards at West Summer Collegiate with my uh, younger brother, who was a football player. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kenny, what's the name? Kenny brought Wayne over 
to the house and I'm in the backyard and he said, hi, King goes, this Wayne Gorkin. So hi, how are you doing, Wayne? I'll see you on the ice, kid. That's what I said to him. <laughs> well, I guess I did see him on the ice. Yeah. So yeah, many, many years I played against him, but that's just how things went uh, with all that money and my parents. And, you know, sometimes you, when you have a big family, you have some friction, but uh, we all worked out. We're all, we're all close. So it's okay. Well, great story. As I said, the book, fantastic. And what a privilege it is to talk to Dennis Brooke today. And again, fittingly, episode number 60 of the podcast, and we saved it just for Dennis. And we're so glad you had the opportunity to talk to us today, Dennis, and we look forward to seeing you on the road sometime soon. Anytime and anytime. My pleasure. Thank you very much. It's time for our Overtime segment, where we take a look back at this week in classic hockey with news, notes, and memories from our Classic Hockey Facebook pages. This week in Boston Bruins history, December 7, 1967, Johnny Chief Busick scores twice to become the Boston Bruins' all-time leading scorer with his 576th career point. Busick passed Milt Schmidt's record of 575 points as the Bruins won the game 3-1 over the New York Rangers at the Boston Garden. According to Fran Rosa of the Boston Globe, at 10.08 Thursday night at the Boston Garden, the crowd began to chant Chief, Chief, Chief and roared a tribute to Johnny Busick. Busick had scored his second goal of the game a 30-foot skimmer at 16:39 of the third period to give the Bruins a safe lead. Busick retrieved the puck and skated to the Bruins bench while the fans stamped their feet and called him by his garden name. Coincidentally, I was with John Busick last night in the Boston Bruins alumni suite and Chief is looking good. He's a great representative of the Boston Bruins who have so much respect for him and to have that type of history and that type of personality still with your organization is uh, is a tremendous thing. This week in Whalers history, December 7th, 1977, Gordy Howe breaks an agonizing 10-game scoring drought to score his 1,000th career goal against the Birmingham Bulls in a 6-3 Whalers World Hockey Association victory. According to Gordy, we were on the power play with a forward line of Antonovich, McKenzie, and myself, plus defensive unit. Antonovich had hit the goal post. Pye McKenzie threw it across the crease, and it was in. It was an almost identical play to when I got my first career goal against Turk Broda. Gordy's historic goal came at the expense of future Whalers goaltender John Cheech Garrett. Gordy was 49 years old at the time, would go on to score 34 goals, add 62 assists for 96 points in the 77-78 season, despite that aforementioned early season slump. From our Pro Hockey Alumni Facebook page this week, New York Rangers legend Ron Duguay discusses Quote, how I ended up in Gene Simmons' bed with Cher. Some troubling news throughout the week, first starting out with Mark Pavlich. 
A Minnesota district court judge ruled Wednesday that former Miracle on Ice and U.S. Olympic hockey player Mark Pavlich is mentally ill and dangerous and ordered him committed to a secure treatment facility. The findings revealed in the court documents reflect what some of Pavlich's family members have said in the past. They're convinced that Pavlich suffers from CTE after repeated concussions and blows while playing in the NHL. They said they started seeing changes in him a few years ago and had tried to get help for him, but that he had refused. His sister, Jean Jevick, has called the case, quote, heartbreaking. He has been an amazing brother, fun, loving, she has said. This has been a total change. We also have a link to a story about the incredible outpouring of love and fond wishes for Montreal Canadiens legend Henri Richard as he deals with Alzheimer's disease. And finally, on another troubling note, former Chicago Blackhawks center and Tampa Bay Lightning coach Steve Ludzik is battling end-of-stage liver disease and requires a life-saving transplant. News of Ludzik's current health situation comes nearly 20 years after he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. In 2012, Ludzik revealed that he'd been battling with the disease since 2000. Now, he opened the Steve Ludzik Foundation in 2013, and that supports the Steve Ludzik Parkinson's Rehab Center in St. Catharines. More than 220 people have come to the center since it's opened its doors. According to the foundation website, and more than $850,000 has been donated. So Steve, of course, is a great guy who's done so much for so many, and he's in need of help right now, and he can't do this himself. So we are sharing uh, this information and getting the word out, and hopefully he will have a solution to uh, this situation in short order. Best of luck to Steve in this new battle that he'll be facing. I had a chance to spend some time this week with former Boston Bruins left wing Stan Jonathan, who is in town making a one of his rare trips. He makes a trip a couple times a year into Boston. Had a chance to sit down and talk with him, and hopefully he'll be on the show sometime during the season. Stan, one of the toughest players ever, one of the most popular players to ever wear the black and gold, and we hope to have him on here telling his story sometime soon. And speaking of future shows, we'll be commemorating the Kansas City Scouts now on their 45th anniversary of their uh, beginning of their franchise in 74-75. And we'll have to celebrate that, of course, author Troy Treasure, who wrote the book Icing on the Plains, the Comprehensive History of the Kansas City Scouts. Also, former Kansas City Scouts player left wing Robin Burns. Now, if you haven't heard of Robins, he's one of the most important figures in hockey in uh, the 1980s, 90s, and beyond, as far as some of the innovations he came up with after his career was over. A remarkable guy, really funny, a ton of stories. You'll want to stay tuned for that. Well, I hope you enjoyed the discussion today with Dennis Marook, a really good guy, and he was a great interviewer, very forthcoming. This book is outstanding. Now, in the format of the show, we could go on with Dennis for about two or three hours. There's a lot of things he talks about there. Uh, you know, he's a great hockey instructor, so he talks a little about his thoughts on on that. There are some other things we didn't touch on that always interested me, like the God Squad they used to have in Washington with born-again Christians like John Pronovo and Ryan Walter and Mike Gartner and how that whole dynamic played in an NHL locker room. He talks about, again, frankly, about his marriages and... Uh, how those split apart and then and ultimately led to reconciliations. 
uh, comeback that Dennis had in the low minors uh, many years after he retired, uh, the very sad passing of his mom, and you know, relatively recently open heart surgery that he went through again successfully. And as he noted, well, one thing I did want to mention too is that the, the theme of his entire playing career was set with a discussion before his rookie season with hockey tough guy Dave Hutchinson, who gave him some uh, time honored advice. And he followed that. You'll see that in the, in the book as well. And another note of events that happened subsequent to the book's publishing in 2017, Dennis was part of the inaugural class of the new London Knights Hockey Hall of Fame, which launched in January 2019. And kudos to the Hunter family and the Knights organization for recognizing Dennis's contribution to London Knights history. Thanks for listening to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. Just a reminder to please consider giving the show a rating and or review on Apple Podcasts. The link is in the show notes. These ratings and reviews help us become a lot more visible and make the show more accessible to hockey fans everywhere. I personally read all the reviews and greatly appreciate them all. If you have thoughts or suggestions for the show, you can talk to contact us through our website at prohockeyalumni.org or be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Pro Hockey Alumni. Thanks for listening. From the Quebec Nordiques, number eight, left wing, Mark Tardif. From the Washington Capitals, number 20, center Dennis Maroon.